For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. Mike, welcome back. It's been like oh, a year and a half. Yeah, fantastic. I'm thrilled you're getting it cranked back up. Absolutely. Well, we came to a place uh, at the end of 2020 where we had too much going on and not enough people. And we felt like putting the podcast on pause for a little while was what we needed to do while we ramped up our team and focused on a bunch of events that we did in 2021. But at the end of 2021, enough people had said to us, what happened to the podcast that I really enjoyed listening to it? And I learned and it was great. Um, and we felt like, you know, this is a great place for us to kind of share past um, an introductory conversation, which is what we're doing a lot of the time. We're, we're bringing introductory conversations to people who haven't really ever thought about this before. Um, but then for people who are interested once they hear that, or people who are on board with change, like we want to see, um, it's hard to kind of find the next thing for them of like, how do you keep learning uh, when we're out there just continually kind of offering this introductory conversation? And so we really felt like in 2022, this was important um, to bring back. And I've actually really missed it because when I do interviews um, on other people's podcasts, it's uh, that same introductory conversation over and over again, which right. is great because it's reaching new audiences. But um, I am like somebody who loves to learn and I verbally process. And I just have realized over the last year how much I have missed this opportunity to like hone in on different aspects of this work or things that are impacted and like actually kind of dig in and talk through um, lots of different things. So well, you've so had some great guests. So it's given you an opportunity to reach out and give somebody, you know, that you admire on the topic, an opportunity to talk to you rather than waiting for an invitation from somebody, you were able to get some, some great yeah. guests before. And it, you know, I, I think that's a great opportunity. Yes. And we've got a, a bunch of people already in the hopper for 2022. Um, so we're going to kind of see how this works out time-wise. We're not sure how often we're going to drop new episodes, 
Um, we want to do it as often as it's helpful for people and, but not too often where you just feel like it's sort of a fire hydrant and you just can't take in new information all the time. So uh, we'll see what we end up doing, but I miss working with you too, Mike. This is Mike and I is like, this is our collaborative project. Um, but Mike has his whole own other career in radio. And so this oh, is the sure only time I get to work with that. you. So. <laughs> They've already heard of me. <laughs> the Mike Madison show. You can go, you have it as a podcast too. Um, so if, if for the few people out there who have not already right, been regular right. subscribers and listeners to Mike's show, now, you know, um, so this is fun. I want to give a quick update do kind of on where end it for good is now. Um, it has changed a lot over the last, uh, year since our last episode aired in November of 2020. Um, at that time we had. Uh, two full-time employees, myself and uh, one other person. She had just come on full-time in August. Uh, now we have four full-time employees. Um, and we, over the course of 2020, we did uh, six community discussions in Mississippi, which are our kind of flagship events that we've done. Um, that totals for us 26 of those over the last couple of years. And um, we uh, so that was a, a big push, lots of new cities that we went to. We had anywhere from 25 or 30 people all the way up to over 100 people coming to those. That was fantastic. Um, then we did some op-eds where either we wrote them or um, we knew people who wanted to write about this issue, kind of their perspective on it. And we said, great, if you if you write it, we'll help you, um, you know, submit it to the people that we know in uh, newspaper outlets in Mississippi. So we did five of those. We published our first research report on um, it's called Misplaced Priorities, and it's about the failures of the drug war in Mississippi. Uh, specifically. So that was a new thing for us um, to do. We've never done a research report before, but we, we really wanted to show people this isn't working. And it's not just that it's not working nationally. It's not working here in Mississippi. Um, and one of the key takeaways from that research for me was that illegal drug use in Mississippi has risen 30% over the last 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So we think about, you know, you kind of hope all these people dying, all these people in jail, surely we're, we're winning something, some part of this, like maybe it's not great, but, but surely it's better than it was before. Uh, that's not what you see. You no. see use increasing overdose deaths skyrocketing. We still have the second highest incarceration rate in the country. Um, it, it is not working. And that's the first step to finding something that does work is to and admit that what you're doing in the years, right? Aren't we on the, was it 1971? Was that the mm, declaration mm -hmm. of the true real push to the war on drugs? We are 50 years in now. Yeah. Yeah. We just, uh, one of the op-eds that we did last year was written by Brett Montague, who's our CEO. And he wrote it on the 50th anniversary of yeah. the kind of beginning of the war on drugs saying, you know, 50 years we've, we've done this. And what have we found? We've you know got higher use and addiction rates than we've ever had, higher overdose rates than we've ever had. Um, it is it is the wrong approach. It's not working. So that report was, um, was neat to see uh, because we felt like we really wanted to produce something that didn't just say, look at all the bad things happening. This is awful. But said, look, this we're taking the wrong approach. This is a federal approach that was trickled down to states. Mississippi adopted that approach and we don't have to adopt that 
anymore. We can find a better path and not take these failed federal policies and use them at the state level when they're not getting us what we really want. Um, so then on top of that, we did 30 interviews on radio, TV, podcasts, and 35 live presentations, which is kind of that um, TEDx content uh, in some sort of live event, whether it's one of our events or us presenting at a Rotary Club or something like that. Um, so after the stats, now is the fun, which is the stories that are part of those stats, which is my favorite part. Um, so I did a podcast interview um, on the Holy Post, uh, which is a kind of Christian podcast. They have a number of, I mean, they have a host, but they have a group of them that, that are part of the talking through current events on that podcast. Um, and they have a global audience. And I got an email from a guy in New Zealand, who's a listener of the podcast. And he said, um, Hey, actually, you know, we just voted on cannabis legalization in New Zealand. He said, you know, at the time I thought, well, you know, I, I think there's some good points in favor of it, but I voted against it because I didn't think it was enough good points in favor of it. Um, and then he said, after hearing your interview, I'm sure that I would have voted differently. Oh, wow. That's great. So to me, that's just a great, like, it, it's people are thinking and they want to learn. And for some of them, if they can hear that in a, in a framework that matches their own value system or the things that they want to see in the world, um, it does make a difference. Uh, it is just simply not true that no one changes their mind about anything. Everyone's already made up their mind. That's hogwash. <laughs> that is not true. People do change over time. Mike's you've changed your opinions on a whole bunch of things over time. I've changed my opinions on things. over time. All of us do. Yeah. And it doesn't take a whole lot. I mean, it, it really, uh, you know, from one of my issues was, uh, was the wars. And, you know, I, I changed a lot into a very anti-war guy, not a pacifist, but, a, you know, an anti-war. And it just took a, you know, hearing Ron Paul some, say some things that made me go, huh, that's weird. I hadn't thought about that before. That's kind of true. I mean, that's, a, I can almost remember, you know, that being my first thought. And that makes you just want to sit, learn a little bit more and a little bit more. And suddenly you find out, oh, I really wasn't dealing with the reality of the situation. I was just kind of accepting the talking points I'd heard my whole life. So, yeah. Um, you know, the and more for information some, that gets out there, the better. Yeah. And for some people, they're going to hear it and they're going to say, I'm not convinced. That's just not, you know, there's other people that hear Ron Paul and they're like, no, that's, you know, I, I can't agree with that. There's people that heard that interview of mine on the Holy Post and are like, she's crazy. This is not, this is not what I want to do. Um, but there are people for whom, uh, you know, humans are, are built to, understand the world around us and where we find dissonance, we either have to shut that off because we're terrible at living with tension uh, or we have to engage with that. And for people who are feeling that dissonance, if they can be invited to, to hear some information that might help put some of those pieces together in a more um, constructive way that makes sense to them, uh, that really matters. So that's not just, that's not like a pat on the back for us. It is, it's an illustration to say people do change and they change um, when they have some sort of interaction with a message that they can hear. And that can come from a friend. It can come from a coworker. It can come from any number of sources. You know, that was a 45 minute interview that he heard that for him, he says that would have changed my vote. Um, I'm not the only person in the world that can, that can invite people into that perspective. 
Uh, there's lots and lots of people that can. It just takes doing it. It takes being out there in a in a kind and respectful way, offering people an opportunity to learn. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing about this particular cause that I find interesting is I think more and more people are at least opening to hear something uh, because it's so obvious after 50 years, what we're doing is not working. Now, they may not agree with you or me on the path forward and what the response to that should be. But boy, has it become apparent that this is not working. You know, now some of the people say, well, we're just not doing enough of the, you know, we need to build more jails. We need to do these kinds of things. But even that argument's wearing a little thin. We've been doing that for 50 years, building more jails, passing more laws, arresting more people. And so I think there's a big crack in this. I think the vast majority of people are looking at this and going, okay, well, you know, I may not agree with Christina and Mike, but I do know it's not working. And then at least gets them start thinking about it. Yeah. One of the events that we did last year, um, a man came to that event who is a pilot. And this just made me think of this story when you were talking about that, of it not working um, and that how long we've been doing it. So he uh, has been a pilot for many years. And uh, he said, you know, I asked him what got, what got you interested in this? Because he's not somebody that's sort of uh, the typical person that might be interested in this either. Very conservative like and you. Christian. Yeah. Um, kind of similar background. And so I said, so what, what got you interested in it? For me, it was this personal experience, you know, being a foster parent. What, what got you interested? And he said, you know, when I was a pilot um, or as a pilot, uh, when I saw a shift in to using prison complexes as navigational landmarks as we fly across the U.S., oh, wow. um, that was it just made me think, what? Like, what happened that we don't use traditional landmarks now? There's so many prisons and they're so big that we're using them as, as navigational markers as we fly. Oh, wow. That's wild. Yeah. yeah that's I, that was just crazy to me. And for, so prisons typically are not, they're not in the middle of your city, like they're out. So unless you sort of intentionally drive by them, it's easy for people who are in the free world to not realize just how many people and just how many prisons we really have, uh, because they don't have to drive by them every day and see that. Uh, but my goodness, they're everywhere and they're warehousing enormous numbers of people. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so one of my my favorite thing that we did in 2021 is that we did our first full day conference. Um, and that was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is about an hour and a half south of Jackson, where I live. Um, and that was fantastic. We had 250 people that came to it. Um, we had 16 different um, speakers, panelists, storytellers. Um, it was just a fantastic day. Uh, we had people come from uh, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Texas, Louisiana, kind of all over this area. We had people drive over and come to this uh, summit. There was a guy who came from Texas and he is a veteran and works with veterans Um and he actually ended up being like the last person who left. He was just so excited. And he was like, I have been to a lot of conferences and I've never been to anything like this. Um, and that was our, our goal was to create a conference that people said that exact thing about so that it didn't feel like a conference. It didn't feel like, oh man, all this like knowledge, just trying to get stuffed into my head. Um, 
So we ended up having uh, people that were sharing their personal stories uh, right next to keynote presentations that were actually kind of, you know, researched content. Um, we had panels of, uh, we had a panel on, from faith leaders, a panel from um, legislators. Uh, so four of our Mississippi legislators were on a panel, um, a panel of criminal justice professionals. And the goal wasn't to say, you know, come if you agree with us and we're all going to rally the troops. It was to say, come if you don't agree, come if you're just interested in learning anything about addiction, ways to reduce harm, um, exploring alternatives to the drug war and legalization. Um, and that was just, it was really amazing to see that many people come, including, you know, law enforcement and other legislators who weren't on the panel who came, um, it was just really amazing to see this kind of small movement that's been growing and growing and now being able to take that next step to having a conference and seeing what people would never think, which is that 250 people in Mississippi came to a conference where one of the keynote presentations was on exploring the legalization of all drugs. Um, so it kind of feels like the twilight zone sometimes, <laughs> but it's a really yeah. good twilight zone. Have you, um, and just got me thinking about this, is there any network, have you networked with uh, organizations and doing things like you're doing in other states that are kind of just grassroots, just concerned citizen groups of people? Some. Um, so last year when I, so I'm working on this book that is, it's very hard to write a book. Let me just say that. It, that is a, a lot of work. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, but when I was doing interviews for that book, I connected with a couple of other people. I just started asking people, you know, who do you know, who might be interested in sharing their story? Um, and there are some, but, but not most of the grassroots work in other states um, tends to be around um, medical use because it's a lot of parents who have children that need uh, medical cannabis. And so right. they're, they're kind of advocating for that. Um, there's now a growing movement related to psychedelics from veterans and law enforcement because um, the, the clinical trials for using psychedelics to treat things like PTSD, um, depression, anxiety, those kinds of things um, are actually far more promising than any drug that's currently on the market to All treat right. any of those things. So that's a really interesting kind of next I see that as sort of what appears to be the next frontier on on bringing substances that are currently illegal back into some sort of legal access. Um, that first frontier has been marijuana, and that second frontier appears to be uh, psychedelics, also specifically for um, medical use. But as with cannabis, I would say, well, but nobody needs to be put in jail for them. Nobody needs to be buying these things on the street. So whether or not it's for medical use or recreational use, it's better to have it in a legal market right. option. So, um, so that's kind of what we've been up to. Uh, my One of the last presentations that I did at the end of 2021, um, I always love hearing what people say right afterwards. It's kind of like you get to hear their processing of, this new idea um, that a lot of them have never considered before. So I went and presented at a, um, a civic club and um, the uh, one of the leaders of the club came up to me 
afterwards. And so they knew that I was talking about addiction. They knew that I was talking about drug policy. Uh, we try to always be very upfront and say, you know, here's my TEDx talk. This is, you know, kind of what we're um, coming to present. Um, and so she was listening and she said, you know, as you were talking, I'm listening and I'm thinking she's not going to say legalization. She's not going <laughs> to say legalization. And then you did say legalization. And then she said, and you know, it does kind of make good sense. Oh, wow. So again, that's not somebody who was primed to say, yes, this is what we need to do. And she's probably not totally convinced that that's what we need to do, or maybe convinced at all, but she could see the logical progression of the harm that's happening, why it's happening and why allowing drugs to be sold legally again would address those main drivers of harm. So that's fun. I, I always I love, love seeing that. that. You just included the word again, uh, that these could be sold legally again, because I think that's one thing that's lost on so many people. We did not always fight this drug war. This nation was not founded and did not become a prosperous country throughout the late 1700s, throughout the 1800s, with people being arrested for things like marijuana, cocaine, and heroin. Um, the, these things were legal. They were tolerated. There were probably, you know, people who abused them, but we did not warehouse human beings for that infraction. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Cause that was one of the things I did not know when I started learning about this, I thought it's like heroin's always been illegal. That's right. just like, it was, it just, that's what's always been. I don't know. Um, and the more that you kind of think about it and the more you look at the history, you're like, wow, this is a really new idea. Like this is prohibition really was a radical departure from anything the world had ever seen. Yeah, uh, there, was a, there was a time in American history where the mom and pop little grocer or pharmacist in some small southern town that, you know, when they're making their orders, Ma, did you order the heroin? <laughs> you know, I mean, they used to <laughs> offer this to people in their stores, you know, so yeah. it, yeah, it's true. And you're right. There were some people that developed problems using it, just like there's people that develop problems using all sorts of things that are legal currently. Um, and yet, you know, we, we allow people to access those things now. Um, and there's just this, this little grouping of substances that we have decided is not going to be part of how we handle pretty much everything else that people want to use and can, you know, all the legal things can be harmful to them too. Um, it's, it's not like, it's not like the harmful ones or the risky ones are illegal and then, and the benign ones are legal. Um, we've got a lot of really dangerous things that are legal, including, you know, alcohol, uh, you can smoke cigarettes. Um, that's, those are the two most harmful on a societal scale of, of any substance, but let's yeah, talk about, Oh, go ahead. Well, this past year, kind of wrapping up the year, you know, this past year was the year that this dope sick uh, movie or the series came out starring Michael Keaton. And it was not it certainly was not about ending the drug war, but it was about the real tragedy. And that's a legal, you know, a, a legal prescribed product by a Fortune 500 company and, and how it wrecked lives. But I, I, 
that's another one of these things that I think is another kind of stepping stone and in looking at, because when people see what people, how the opioid uh, epidemic really took hold, when, when they can understand that there are possibly other alternatives that can mitigate the disaster that is portrayed in Dope Sick, that will wake a lot of people up. And that was a huge series. It did really well. It was done well. And a lot of people were talking about it. Yeah. So the, so I have kind of mixed feelings about it because um, on the one hand, yes, terrible things were done. Um, and yes, it did dramatically increase the number of prescriptions that were written. And yet, unless people understand a little deeper what's happening now, the knee-jerk reaction is going to be, let's cut off all the prescriptions and put the pharmaceutical companies out of business, and that will fix the problem. They prescribe too many, now let's make them not prescribe them. Uh, yeah, I think that they kind of got to that towards the end of the series. I felt like they kind of addressed that because you saw people left dangling when they did start mm -hmm. to enact these things and that people were left even more desperate than before. Yeah. Whether people can really extrapolate out, you know, what that means and, and like you're talking about, because it is, it's knee jerk. Oh, people are taking too many opioids, outlaw opioids. You know, that's like yeah. a knee jerk for everything. But um, it did address a little bit of that, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. So when we look at, um, you know, one of the stats that just came out a couple of months ago, the CDC's provisional data for overdose deaths for 2020, and we crossed 100,000 people dying in one year in the U.S. of uh, a drug overdose, which is just absolutely heartbreaking. Absolutely. It is just devastating. Is that a record? Yes. It is. So even mm -hmm. during the crack epidemic of the late 80s, oh, early yeah. 90s. Nowhere close. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Record-breaking numbers. And a, a big part of that is fentanyl now on the streets. Um, so if you break down those 100,000 deaths into opioid deaths, that's about two-thirds of overdose deaths are opioid-related. If you break that down into how many of those opioid overdose deaths had fentanyl in their systems when they died. Now, fentanyl is um, a synthetic, excuse me, a synthetic opioid. Uh, it can be manufactured. You don't need a, a plant to manufacture it. It's not like cannabis that you need to grow the cannabis plant. Um, it's synthetic. You can make it out in a, you know, you can make it in a chemical lab. You can also make it out on the plains of, you know, somewhere that doesn't have a lot of people around. Um, and so fentanyl is now being, uh, produced because it is far more potent than even something like heroin. And so you can smuggle a lot less fentanyl and be able to make uh, a lot more, you know, individual doses of drugs for people to, to take. So it incre increases your profit margin because you don't have to smuggle as much of it um, to get the same amount of money out of it. Um, but it's really, really potent. It's like 50 to hundred times more potent than morphine. And so you, you can think through, okay, so you buy this little baggie of something on a street corner and it's probably got fentanyl in it because most drugs on the street do now. Um, 
that are opioid related and what's going to happen when you don't know what you're taking. So you have a really high potency drug and you don't have any kind of knowledge of like, how much of this should I take? How much is going to get me high and how much is going to kill me? Uh, there's no, you can't figure that out on the street when you buy it. And so what's happening is that more and more people are dying of overdoses and 85%, it's like just under 85, almost 85% of opioid overdose deaths in 2020 had fentanyl in their systems when they died. So the, the, the lag over from the prescribing epidemic is that people think that the overdose epidemic is people getting pills from their doctor that they're taking and dying from. That is not what is driving the overdose epidemic. What's driving the overdose epidemic is that more and more people are using drugs on the street. That's in part due to crackdowns on prescriptions. And those drugs have simultaneously gotten far more potentially deadly because of prohibition's incentive to make them more and more potent. And right. once powdered fentanyl hit the streets and was synthesized by criminal organizations, uh, it has been off to the races in, in just the worst kind of way. And, and there's no way out of this without addressing what's causing it. I mean, you can't, you can't crack your way down out of fentanyl being on the underground market now, like it's there, it's, it's not going anywhere. Uh, right. You know, so what are your thoughts on this, Mike, this fentanyl well, problem? You know, the, the other thing about it that just shows the difference between, you know, a legalized product, even if it's, uh, you know, something fentanyl like, I mean, there's, there's no, uh, there's no accountability whatsoever to somebody who is putting fentanyl products out on the street. You know, you can't sue somebody, you die, they don't have to pay any attention to if their product is deadly, where if this was some kind of a company that was putting out a deadly product, they would have every incentive of the world, even if it was a, you know, a, a huge pain reliever or an intoxicant to somebody, they still have to test it, make sure people aren't going to die from it. You know what I mean? And it, there's, and this is just another consequence of keeping this stuff underground. Yeah. And there's kind of this big push to say, well, we need to, uh, you know, jack up sentencing for fentanyl. If you've sold fentanyl to somebody, you know, you should be in prison for the rest of your life. If somebody dies of an overdose related to fentanyl, the dealer who sold it to them should be in prison for the rest of their life. Um, we could lock up everyone today who's selling anything with fentanyl in it on the street and they will all be replaced tomorrow by exactly. a whole raft of new people who are selling fentanyl on the street. Fentanyl is there not because you've got evil people who are conniving how to kill your loved ones. Fentanyl is there because the profit incentives of an underground market are to sell very potent substances so that they are easier to smuggle. That's not going away until we deal with the problems of prohibition and what it's causing. Right. And if you got rid of all fentanyl on the planet tomorrow, something will take its place. Some new true car fentanyl might come up. Car yeah, fentanyl well, is what's right. coming next, which is, you know, a thousand times more um, potent than fentanyl. It's only used as a large animal tranquilizer. And yet we're seeing in big cities, you know, car fentanyl has begun hitting some of those streets where, you know, if you thought fentanyl was bad, how much worse is it when you have something that's, you know, 10 times or a hundred times more potent than fentanyl is. Um, and when you, when you get into that kind of potency, it's like, if it's 10 or a hundred times more potent for a, for a random person on the street, who's trying to dose something into a, a syringe that they're going to use, like the, the, the risk factor, the razor thin margin that you have with these substances, when they're out of some sort of, of, uh, a legal 
um, not illegal, a legal opportunity to buy them is like, it just is this Russian roulette that is just, it is so tragic. It is, it's awful to see this happening, to see this happening to families, families who've been involved in end it for good. We just did a, um, uh, um, there's a family who lost their son after many years of struggle um, with addiction. This just happened a couple of weeks ago and they chose end it for good as their charity of choice in lieu of flowers for their son. Um, and that, you know, I've never even met, um, the son, Brandon, but I've met his mom. She came to one of our events along with her husband two years ago. We've stayed in contact since then. Um, and it, you know, even, even that is just, you know, when I got that text from her that said, you know, he's gone. And just the week before she had sent me a text about, you know, he's coming home and we're, we're really hopeful. Um, you know, it, it is devastating. And that's, you know, I, I, I wept for them and I don't even know him and I don't even know her that well. If you compound that by the real families that are living and losing from the devastation of our current drug policies, it is, it's hard to even kind of wrap your mind around that. Uh, it is, it just is, it's like, we're going to look back on this in another 10 or 20 years and say, dear God, how did we not address this earlier? How did we not look at the roots of what's causing it and do anything that we needed to, to fix this? Because we're on track right now for every year, a hundred thousand people dying. It is, it's unconscionable to keep doing yeah. the same thing over and over again when you have that many families that are paying millions that kind of, of price. People. Yeah. Millions, yes. you know, and when it comes to fentanyl, you know, it, it even puts law enforcement, you know, we've seen stories all the time that, a, you know, a police officer is involved in a drug bust and he's, a, you know, exposed to a large amount of very deadly, you know, chemicals, a lot of times fentanyl or something like that. I mean, it's even putting law enforcement uh, into more harm each time you, you know, as the drug war goes on. So here's the interesting thing about fentanyl is that um, fentanyl is not it was not developed by cartels. Uh, it's been on the market as a legal drug for many, many years. It's used as typically in like a patch for um, pain management for cancer patients. So it is really potent, but it, even a potent drug, when you dose it appropriately, um, you can give it to anyone at the right dosage and it will be helpful to them. I had that experience actually with fentanyl a couple of years ago this was at the beginning of kind of this fentanyl epidemic. So I knew what it was and I knew lots and lots of people were dying from it. Um, this was three years ago now. Um, so my youngest son was four and we were at the ballpark and um, he slammed his finger in a door. I think I've told this story before on the podcast. Um, we went to the emergency room. Um, he needs to get his finger uh, sewed back on. And the nurse comes in and she has a little syringe and she says, you know, I'm going to give him some fentanyl and, you know, it's going to help with the pain. So here you have in a medical setting, in a, a way where you can uh, dose even a potent substance like fentanyl appropriately, you can give it to a four-year-old and it helped him numb the pain so that he could get through having stitches in his finger. And yet we have 40, 50, 30-year-old men and women who are dying every day from uh, fentanyl-related overdose deaths. It's not fentanyl. That's the problem. It is right. the policies that have put fentanyl on the street. And until we address those policies, fentanyl is not going anywhere. It's just going to keep uh, making its rounds on the street 
and it's going to get more and more potent. If we crack down on fentanyl, just like you said, yeah, the next thing's going to come up. Um, there are hundreds of new syntheses of different substances that come out every year. Uh, it is, it's like a drug whack-a-mole. It, it never gets you anywhere. You, you crack down on one, there just becomes another one. Um, and with prohibition, it's, it's always going to be that that other one is more potent than the last one. Because if you crack down on that one, well, how can we make it even smaller? How can we smuggle it through the mail? How do we need to, you know, not even have to grow something in the ground? How can we just synthesize it in a, um, you know, in a, in a factory somewhere? Right. So there's just, there's kind of no way out of this without addressing the, the policy drivers. You can do things like fentanyl testing strips, uh, but fentanyl's in almost everything now. So just because someone knows that fentanyl is in the drug they bought isn't necessarily going to mean that they're not going to take it. They might, they might be a little more um, careful with it, you know, take a little bit uh, lower and slower, um, but it's not going to make fentanyl go away. Um, there's lots of good things that we can do to try to save some lives, overdose prevention sites. They just opened the first two of them in the United States in New York a couple of weeks ago. Um, that you know, Already they have reversed 63 overdoses at those two sites. Um, and yet those are, you know, still largely fought against in all other places in the US. Um, and there's a lot of people in New York that would like to see those closed down. So you can do some things to save lives, but until you address the drivers of why so many people are overdosing, um, it's gonna be hard to do that on any kind of broad scale that, that reverses the kind of harm we're seeing. Yeah. So I wanna ask you a couple of questions about that, Mike, because, um, so I wrote an op-ed just a couple of weeks ago about fentanyl, about the crisis, shared the story about my son and made the point that fentanyl is not the problem. Prohibition is the problem. Prohibition is what led to fentanyl on the street and dealing with prohibition is what we have to do to, to meaningfully address why so many people are dying. And I got an email from somebody who said, I completely disagree with that piece you wrote. And this is what I think. Um, so I kind of broke down that response into sort of the main points of, of the disagreement. And for me, that's always why, you know, unless I can answer people's disagreement, uh, I don't have a great point. <laughs> right. right. So, um, so I love it that people email me the things they disagree with. I don't just want to hear, you know, your interview changed my mind and I would vote differently. I want to hear, I think you're completely wrong. And this is why. Um, so you can always email me, Christina at enditforgood.com. All the things that you disagree with that you hear on the podcast or see me post. Um, and I'm not going to out you. I might, I might use what you send me to address it in some way, but I'm never going to like say your name or anything embarrassing like that. So, um, so one of her uh, points was um, that she could not get behind making drug abuse comfortable or paying doctors and nurses to monitor users in some sort of clinical setting. Um, she said, you know, people just need to get jobs and an education and, you know, if that's not enough for them, then maybe jail is just what they need. What would you say to that, Mike? Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I was thinking about that when you were talking about people challenging these, uh, these areas where they're providing, you know, needles or whatever they've got for these harm reduction efforts around the country. And so many people are against them. Um, there is this idea that the drug addict is a flawed, terrible, throwaway person that cannot, you know, doesn't really deserve to live among us. As we've seen, like you said, 100,000 people died this past year. A lot of those were sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, moms and dads who 
you know, maybe had a pain issue. Now, some of them might have been big partiers, but I, I think more and more people are realizing regular people get trapped in these addictions and need medical help to get out of these things. They're not all throwaway people. And unfortunately, it may be one of those things where the population of people affected by this has to reach so many people so that we all have somebody in our lives that we actually want to save that we mm. think, oh, all those people aren't others. You know, they're not the other. They're not the throwaway people. And I, I think there's been an idea of that, uh, you know, for a long time that these are just people that you kind of throw away and they don't deserve really our, our care. Uh, they just need to be separated from us, put into a cage. But no one feels that way about their brother or their sister or their cousin or somebody that they know and love that they realize that this is a disease that has trapped them. Mm. It, it, her first comment there about um, not wanting to to make drug abuse comfortable um, is interesting. So I think there's a strong sentiment, particularly from sort of abstinence based recovery models of, you know, you have to hit bottom before you can get better. Um, and I, you know, look, if abstinence based recovery has helped people get sober, that's great. I'm, I'm all for people trying whatever they think is going to help them build a better life. I don't think they should be forced to try anything, but whatever, if there's a million different ways people could become sober, uh, great. Then we should have a million different options or let people offer a million different options. Um, so there's sort of this, I, I see it as sort of this conflict between what we perceive as making it comfortable and, um, like, so if you, that's going to lead you to say we should stigmatize it heavily. We should make it as painful as possible for the person so that they kind of are not feeling comfortable. Um, and that makes it really, really difficult for people to get better because it increases the amount of trauma in their life, which increases the amount that they want to hide and numb and all of those things. Um, so it's really hard to kind of switch that mindset from, we want this to be painful for you so that you will stop to we recognize that making this even more painful in your life is not helping you stop. Um, now for some people, yes. Is there sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, a rock bottom moment where they, you know, see the light and they're ready to change. Certainly that can be true for the vast majority of people. That's not true. They, they age out of drug use and addiction over time. That is statistically true that it's, it's not a, a Damascus road, you know, from, to use a biblical illustration, it's not a, you know, Paul on the Damascus road, he sees the light and he, you know, suddenly goes from someone who's persecuting Christians to a Christian who is now, you know, spreading the message of Christianity. Um, that's, those are the kinds of stories from addiction to recovery that we like to tell and hear. Um, but the vast majority of people do not experience that kind of swap overnight. Um, and for most people, the, the change comes from having just like what she said, an opportunity to have a job and to get an education and to build a family and to, to stabilize their life, to build positive connections. Um, so if we're not willing to allow people to build a thriving life while they're still using, then we are consigning people. We're saying we have no place for you in our culture unless you have already made the quantum leap to sobriety. And to right. me, that is a tragedy because we shouldn't be forcing people to either stay in the shadows or die unless you can make the quantum leap. Why aren't we saying, can you make one step? 
Can you, can you just make one step today? Could you maybe get on a medication assisted treatment rather than using drugs on the street? You're far less likely to die and far more likely to enter long-term sobriety. If you just take that one step, uh, are you willing to, you know, come into a homeless shelter instead of sleeping on the streets? You know, there's all these different, just one little step at a time. And we all know that change in our own lives tends to happen that way. That's the way most human change happens is one step, then another step, then back a few steps, then forward a few steps. And over the course of time, um, people do change, but if people are dead, they can't change all those people who died of an overdose that the opportunity to take those steps is over for them. And that's something that we have a chance to change. Yeah. You know, one thing that's kind of interesting to me too, and um, we are so quick to, to judge the drug addict and, and that, you know, when you talk about addiction, you immediately think of really hard drugs kind of, you know, societally, that's what that means. And we, we all really fail to acknowledge a ton of addictions we have. You know, a lot of people say, well, they should just quit. They should just go get a job. They should just be productive. You know, that, that it's a moral failing for them. And I know this is not, you know, apples to apples, but how many people couldn't give up sugar for 30 days if their life depended on it? How many of them could not give up caffeine? You know, how many people could not give up, you know, un unhealthy habits that they have? And you know, I'm not even talking about cigarettes or alcohol or anything like that. We all are prone to addictions of different kinds. Drugs obviously can have some catastrophic consequences to you where sugar may take 30 years, but it may be equally devastating to your health over that period of time. This, this judging of people not able to stop uh, doing something or something that has a physical craving for something... <laughs> I th it's kind of funny. I think a lot of us, I mean, it, it might be television. It might be social media. It might be your phone. Anybody who wants to throw away the addicts should look at their own life and see if they can take anything that is not necessarily uh, positive for their life and immediately tomorrow, see the light and be done with it. And I bet you 99% of the people could not do that with anything from sugar to their phone. Yeah. I haven't had any success in doing that with the things in my own life. I'd like to see change. Sure. In. It's just, I mean, you're like, gosh, how I'm a little better than I was 10 years ago, but like, man, why does this take so long to change? Yeah. We are all addicts of one type or another. I mean, we, yeah. have to, we all have our, you know, our things. Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. So one of her uh, other points, and then I'm going to just finish with her last sentence is um, she said, you know, I'd be interested to hear from former users that got cleaned up while they were incarcerated, uh, which is a great point because there are some people who, you know, they go to jail and it was the wake up call that they needed. Um, now, if you look, if you ask law enforcement, whether they think that's the typical experience, they would tell you no, because they arrest the same people over and over again. So if that, if that worked for them, they would not be arresting that person ever again. They would have seen the light and gone on their, their merry way, um, you know, not using anymore. So for the vast majority of people, this is not working to stop them from using a substance. I actually was talking to a guy um, who, so he heard uh, a podcast interview that I did on theology and the raw, which is one of my 
personal favorite podcast to listen to. So super honored to be on it last year. And he heard it and he um, sent me an email and he said, you know, I was uh, incarcerated for a year in my early twenties for heroin. And he said, I used to, I used to tell people that jail is what saved my life, that, that I recovered because of jail. Um, And he said, so he's in his thirties now. And he said that, you know, the more that I have reflected on that experience and the experiences that have helped me maintain sobriety over time, I would actually say now that I recovered in spite of jail, not because of jail. So it was a really interesting take for me on, um, sometimes we don't, we don't even recognize at the time, uh, you know, we, we may want, um, that experience to be redemptive. And for some people, I think you could say that it was, and I'm, I'm all for people owning their own experience and whatever that was for them. Uh, but there are people for whom, um, as they reflect on that experience, they would either say at the time, this was awful and it never should have been done to me. Or in retrospect, they would say that was awful and never should have been done to me. Um, so can it help? Uh, yeah, I think it, there are people for whom it can help. Uh, and I would, would always go back to just because you can get someone to change a behavior by putting them in jail does not mean that you should do that. That, that would be true of anything. I mean, would I stop eating chocolate cake if you put me in jail for it? Right. Probably. I mean, I would hope so. And yet I'm not sure. And is that really the right thing to do? Is it, is it okay to do that just to try to force somebody to change behavior by traumatizing their life? I think it's a lazy approach. I think it's, and it's, it's proven to not work, you know, but it's, I I think it's become just one of these, uh, this is what we do. We do more of it, you know, uh, it's just not working. Yeah. And I, that's interesting that you said it's a lazy approach. I think that um, when I was talking to Dr. Bruce Alexander, who, for people who have read um, Chasing the Scream, which I would highly recommend if you haven't read, uh, his story is included in there. And I interviewed him for the book that I'm working on. And he said, um, I said, so, you know, what would you like, how do you think about this now? Like, it is kind of terrifying as a parent of my oldest son is 13. You know, you've got these kids coming up and I recognize now more than ever that my kids could use drugs. They could become addicted to drugs because it's, it's not a parental failing. That means your child is going to use drugs. Um, they, you know, there's a host of reasons why they would experiment with them or why they would become addicted to them. Um, and he said, he said, it, he said, addressing the real problem is terrifying. It is terrifying for you to acknowledge that, that you can't do everything right and ensure that your child isn't going to use substances or become addicted. So it's, it's easier. It's easier to take the approach we've taken. You blame the drug. It's the demon drug. We just prohibit the drug. And then at least we feel like we have addressed the problem. It's much, much more difficult for us to acknowledge that that isn't actually addressing the problem and to acknowledge that the real problem isn't something we can control the same way that we can just write a law into, you know, feeling like we've done something. And that was helpful to me because I think that's, it's part of sort of, um, so, so you would say it's the lazy way out. I think he would say it is the, the, uh, the more palatable way out. It's the, it's the easier thing to live with, to, 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 to believe that we can, um, you know, kind of force our way into getting kind the kinds of outcomes that we want. 
Um, and it is much harder to live in the world that really is, which is we can't force our way out of people's choice to use. We can't force our way out of addiction, becoming a part of that experience for some people. We can't force people out of addiction back into sobriety. Um, but I think especially in the West where we are so used to being able to kind of <laughs> get our own way and we're individuals and, you know, we, we have resources and we can make things happen. It's really, really hard for us to sit in that kind of place that we can't control this. Like we think that we can, and like we have tried to, um, yeah. and instead kind of remove our attempts at control that are creating a lot of harm and look at how we can focus on reducing harm rather than just trying to, to come over the top with the hammer. Yeah. All right, Mike, I'll leave us with her last, uh, comment, which I, I appreciate her sending. I just totally disagree with. She says prohibition's better than nothing. Um, and I would say, you know, I, I think what she means is prohibition is, is better than legalization, but I actually think, um, that, when you look at those side by side and you look at the collateral damage of both of those, and they both have some collateral damage. I mean, if you have legal drugs, there's some collateral damage that's going to come of that, just like there is with current legal drugs. And yet um, this is about weighing options. This is not about the perfect versus the imperfect. This is about which option gets us less harm in society. Uh, and when I weigh those, uh, I think the scale is radically weighed towards legalization is a far less harmful approach than prohibition. Yeah. Well, I, it's been around for a long time now. We're, we're now 50 years into this. So the vast majority of people either listening to the podcast, watching the news, they do not know another world. You know, they, they have no frame of reference for existing any other way. This is just as it is. It's to me, I'm a, I'm a virulent opponent of the federal income tax, but most people don't really want to hear me talk about it because they just think, well, you just, you know, death and taxes, you just pay them. And I think, no, we formed a nation. We never paid. They never took a dollar out of your paycheck. But now it's so accepted to people. I think the drug war is very similar to that. Everybody's perspective is through the eyes of what, what would be radical is to change what we're doing right now. But as you said, the the drug war itself was the radical change you know See, now it, you've educated me because i didn't know that the federal income tax <laughs> wasn't always part of what we did so absolutely not not before really world war ii is when uh, funding world war ii is when they first started going to the working class it started in the uh, like 1913 and it was uh, like one or two percent on over only the uber wealthy prior to that there was absolutely no mm. federal government claim on your paycheck who knew? Mike knew, but I did not know. So consider yourself uh, educated on another topic today. This is the end of this episode, but we'll be back. Mike and I will be doing episodes together and we'll be back to having um, guests on. I've met a lot of really amazing people over the last year as I've been working on this book and I cannot wait to bring you their stories and bring them on as guests. Um, share an episode with somebody that you know. Uh, that's how people change their minds. It's little bits of this and that. Actually, the guy that told me about um, his experience in jail and that he would say that uh, he recovered in spite of jail instead of because of jail. So he actually did not listen to that podcast episode. His dad sent him the episode of the podcast and he was uh, like, yeah. my dad is really conservative. And he sent me this podcast episode that you were on about, you know, legalization of drugs. And I thought, well, this is crazy because if my dad thinks this is good enough to pass on, 
you know, maybe I need to, to listen to this. So that's how people hear. They hear about it from somebody sending them something, an article, a podcast episode, a whatever it might be. That is how people get an invitation to change their minds or at least an invitation to learn and they may not change their minds. And that's okay too. Don't let this spoil your next holiday get together with your family just because they disagree with you on drug policy. There's a several billion people in the world that you can work on uh, having this conversation with that are not in your immediate family. And that's a much better way to spend your time rather than uh, potentially <laughs> destroying some family relationships because you disagree on policy. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. I'm Enjoy so it. excited to be back at this again and look forward to hanging with you guys next time. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.